Our first speaker is Shlomo Yaakov Siegel, who will be giving words in memory of Rabbi Zev Siegel. obviously about to begin kinnis, and before each kinnis, somebody will get up and introduce that particular kinnah, explain that kinnah. But before we do that, we're just going to give a general introduction to the kinnis and a little bit about what the day of Tisha B'Av is about. The Pasuk in Kehelis tells us, that everything has its season, and there is a time for everything under the heaven. And the Pasuk says, there's an ace livchais, there's a time to cry in Zabdrashi, when is this time to cry, this time to cry is on Tisha B'av. And while on all other Mayadim we have mitzvahs, on Rosh Hashanah we have the Shaifer, and on Pesach we have Matzah, and on Sukkot we have the Dalad Minim and Sukkah, on Tisha B'av we have something as well. What we have is Bechia. We have crying. And if we can try to take a deeper look into what are we crying for, what does our crying accomplish, what is our crying all about? We know simply that on Tisha B'av we cry, we mourn for the destruction of the first base on Mikdash, the destruction of the second base on Mikdash, it was the day that Bar Kochva's revolt was crushed and his stronghold at Beitar was captured by the Romans and we're told that so many hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered that the Goyim used our blood as fertilizer for their vineyards for seven years. It was the day that Turnus Rufus had Yerushalayim, the Makam HaMikdash, raised and plowed under. But we are told that Tisha B'av is rooted in the sin and the Aveir of the Meraglim, the spies, that Moshe Rabbeinu sent out when Klal Yisrael was standing at the threshold of Eretz Yisrael, ready to conquer Eretz Yisrael, and he sent out the spies to go tour the land. And they came back and they spoke Dibas Haaretz, they spoke badly about the land. And the Gemara tells us, Amr Rabbi Yechanan, Rabbi Yechanan says, The day that the Meraglim, the spies, came back, it was Erev Tishabov. And the Pasuk tells us, And the nation cried on that night, that night obviously referring to the night of Tishabov. And the Gemara goes on, and the Gemara says, Amr HaKadosh Baruch Hu, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Atem bechisem bechiyah shelchinam. You wept in vain on that night of Tisha B'Av. V'ani kaveyelachem bechiyah I will establish this date for you as a time of real weeping for all generations. And simply the way we understand this is that we wept in vain. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is punishing us, and He said, You have no real reason to cry. And because you cried for no real reason, I will give you a reason to cry. And for all generations on this day you will cry. But if you think about it, it's not that simple. First of all, what is the zelu umazeh? What exactly is the punishment here? I understand that because we cried, so we should be punished for crying. But why because we wept in vain does that translate into crying for all generations? And secondly, if you think about it, was this really the core of the sin, the Avera that took place by the Miraglim? The spies came back, they spoke terribly about Eretz Yisrael. Klal Yisrael was ready to, to look for a new leader. We didn't believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu could give us the land. The Bechia, the crying, was merely a symptom of everything else that took place. Yet the Gemara is telling us that what we're being punished for is the crying. And seemingly in the bigger picture as well, this doesn't seem to add up. Because we know that Tisha B'Av, aside from being the saddest day of the year, is also the climax of the three-week mourning period that we have for the Beis HaMikdash, beginning with Shavasar B'Tamuz until Tisha B'Av. And Shavasar B'Tamas is a day that a number of tragedies befell Klal Yisrael. Amongst them being the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Arsina and he was ready to come down with the Luchas. And Klal Yisrael was tired, they made a mistake, they thought Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to come down already, and they formed the, they formed the Egel, the calf, 
And they said, This is your God, O Israel, that took you out of Mitzrayim. Yet as terrible as the day that Shavasar Batamas is, it does not come up to the level of sadness, of tragedy that Tishabov is. But it's an interesting thing, because if any of us would be asked, what was the worst Aveira that Klal Yisrael did? Was it the Chayta Egel, the sin of the golden calf? Or was it the sin of the Meraglim, the sin of the spies? We would all obviously say that it was the Chayta Egel, the sin of the golden calf. It took place at Arsinai. It was a Bechina, at least for some in Klal Yisrael, of Avodah Zorah, of idol worship. The Mepharshim say that if Moshe Rabbeinu would have come down, the, the, the purpose of the world would have been complete. Yet in the Seder, in the order of the days, Shiva Batamas is lined up with the Chayta Egel, the sin of the golden calf. While Tishabov, the day of Bechia Ledairus, the day of the ultimate Chorban, of the ultimate tragedy, is lined up with the sin of the spies, the sin of the Miraglim. Seemingly, it should be the opposite. And to understand this, we need to first understand, what is crying? What does it mean when somebody cries? Where does his crying come from? We know that a person is typhus, a person grasps things with seichel, with understanding. The way we communicate with each other is through our understanding, our seichel. But then there's the deeper part of the person. The person himself, his chuka, his rotsen, the person's desire, who he is, all that's tied up in himself, the person's emotion. And in the world of seichel, of understanding, diburim, words, are its expression. But in the world of emotion, of who I am at my core, the mama and bechia, crying, is its expression. We know that lave, the heart, and bechi, crying, has the same gematria, the gematria 32. Because when somebody cries, it's an expression of his heart. When somebody is at a loss for words, he turns to tears. Tears come from the heart. The Chetah Egel, the sin of the golden calf, was a terrible, terrible Aveir that we pay for until this day, like the Pasuk says, that in all future generations, when Klal Yisrael sins, HaKadosh Baruch is going to throw in part of that punishment that we should have gotten for the Chetah Egel. But as bad as it was, it was a defined act. It was a defined Aveir. It wasn't the lack of a kesher of a tie with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Rather, we made the wrong cheshbon, we got caught up in the Aveira. And as bad as it was, there could be charata, you can regret it. There can be tshuva, repentance on such an Aveira. And as bad as it was, the Pasuk tells us, Vayinachem Hashem, that Hashem was comforted. But when it came to the Miraglim, the spies, the terrible moment of Tisha B'av was, we cried that we didn't want to go there. When we just didn't want to go, that was one thing. But when we cried, when our innermost self, our being, our emotion, who we are, was saying that we don't want to go. For that, there's nothing to do. Tshuva, repentance can be done on something bad, something terrible like the Chayta Egel. But for the lack of good, for the lack of a desire, simply that we didn't want to go, that can't be changed. And therefore, the Chayta Egel <coughs> is lined up with Shavasar Batamas, while the sin of the Meraglim, the spies, is lined up with the day of the ultimate tragedy, Tishabov. So what can be done? And on that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells us, That the tikkun, the way to make up for that crying of chinam is to have a bechia crying for something real. To feel that deep hurt that somehow, although we never saw the Beis HaMikdash and it's something we can't describe. Somehow, when we all say the Avoid on Yom Kippur, it tugs at our heart. It's something deeply rooted in us. A deep hurt that only gets harder with time. That in order to forge a new bond with the land of Eretz Yisrael, the same tears that once dissolved our link to the land must now be shed in love and yearning for the land. Only once our souls are merged with the land can our bodies follow. 
Imagine a child who loses everything he has. He loses his family, he loses his house, he's homeless, he has nothing. And a friendly neighbor takes him in and they give him everything. They give him food, they give him shelter, they give him education, they buy him anything he needs. The kid has everything. Yet somehow when the child goes to sleep at night, he's still sad. Because as much as he has everything, he's not home. He's missing the, he's missing the main thing. And in a sense, that's what we are. We're a generation that has everything. Our grandparents and great-grandparents could have dreamed of the access that we have to Minyonim, to Davening, to Taira. Yet as much as we have everything, sometimes when you have everything, that's when you feel the void more than anything else. And we have everything, but we're not home. In a sense, we don't have anything. And for that, on Tisha B'Av, we cry. But we cry for more than that as well. We know that Kinnis is divided into four parts. There's Kinnis on the Bayes Rishon, the first Beis HaMikdosh. There's Kinnis on the Bayes Sheni, the second Beis HaMikdosh. There's Kinnis on the Bitulei Vesrei Fosan, Shel Taira, the destruction of Taira. And there's Kinnis on the Golos, on the exile. And it's the same Kinnis that we say every year. But unfortunately, every year, we never have our new tsaras, our new tragedies to bring into the Kinnis. And Reb Volba once suggested his Talmidim, a meaningful approach to the structure of Kinnis. He noticed that on the day of Tisha B'av, we say 40 kinnis. And he said the number 40 is not a coincidence. He referenced Rebbe Eliezer in the Agadah Shel Pesach that says that Hashem did not only inflict 10 makas on the Mitzrim, on the Egyptians, rather He inflicted 40 makas, as the Pasuk tells us, Yishalach b'amcharen apray evro v'zam v'tzorah m'shlachas malchiron. Fury, wrath, trouble, and a band of emissaries of evil. And each plague was a different form of pain. And he said that in Mitzrayim there were 40 makas. And throughout history the Jewish people have endured their own 40 makas. How much we have suffered. Destruction, murder, deaths of leaders, deaths of children, brutality, torture, inquisitions, crusades, holocaust, suicide bombings. Evra, Zam, Tzara, Mishlachas Malcheron. And for these on Tisha B'av, we cry as well. We say at the end of Eicha last night, For even if you utterly rejected us, Hashem, you have already raged against us enough. I'm sure we've all heard of the famous Kleisenberger Rebbe. The Kleisenberger Rebbe, who in the war lost his wife and 11 children to the Nazis in Machshimon. And the Rebbe was known for famously and heroically after the war, rebuilding Tyre in America and Eretz Yisrael, being Mechazek, all those in Europe as well. Shortly after the war, the Rebbe came to America to speak on behalf of the Sheris Hapleta, the survivors who were Nebuch still suffering in the DP camps in Europe. At the time, the Rebbe was holding a minion on Shabbos in the Beth Moses Hospital in the Bed-Stuy area of Brooklyn. One of the weeks that the Rebbe was there was the week that we lay in the Teichicha, the curses that will befall Klal Yisrael if they don't go in the ways of Hashem. And the minute the custom in Klal Yisrael is, the one reading the Torah, the Balkaire, lanes it in a lower voice so as not to arouse our enemies to these Klolos, to these curses that we are reading. And the Balkaire begins to read it in a hushed tone, in a lower voice. And suddenly the Rebbe bangs on his shtender and he screams, Hecher, say it louder. The Balkaire assumed that the Rebbe just couldn't hear him. So he said it a little louder. But the Rebbe still wasn't happy and he banged again and he said, Hecher, say it louder. Finally, the Balkair was leaning the way he does on any other week. But the Rebbe kept banging, Hecher, 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 say it louder, say it louder. By that point, there was a commotion around the Rebbe. The Balkair stops. He looks at the Rebbe with the face of Rebbe. What do you want me to do? And the Rebbe says, We no longer have to read these miserable curses quietly. 
There is no curse we have not experienced. There is no affliction we have not suffered. We saw it all. We lived it all. Let us shout with pride to our Father in Heaven that we have already received all these curses. We have survived these curses. And now it is His turn to bring us the blessings and the redemption. The Rebbe stopped talking, looked back into his Chumash, and the Valkyrie continued leaning, loud and clear, as if singing his nation's anthem. There is hope. There is a future. There is an end. But on Tisha B'Av, our job is to show HaKadosh Baruch Hu that deep down we truly do want it. And that's the idea of kinnis. Most of us, I'm sure, know from years past that the kinnis is truly hard to understand. And this is partially because the kinnis were written with hergish, with emotion, not with the way one would write a regular essay. And ideally, Tisha B'Av would be a day where we would all sit and be Yeshiv B'Adav Yidoim to sit alone, say the kinnis and cry. But unfortunately, we don't even have the kalim to properly mourn. And therefore, we turn to explanations, to words. But it's certain that at some point throughout the kinnis, everybody can find something that they relate to. And to tap into the emotion of the python, the one who wrote the kinnah. And Amir Tzashem HaKadosh Baruch Hu will see the bechiyah of our lev and answer our call of Hashiveinu Hashem Eilecha V'Noshuva Chadesh Yameinu Kikedem. We'll now begin with Kinnah Zayin. Kinnah Zayin on page 158 begins with Eicha Atzdeba Pecha. And the idea of the Kinnah is really a constant asking from Hashem to remember us for good. And one would expect in a masa amatan, a give and take with a friend that one's trying to get a favor from, that he would try to remind the friend of the times that he did a favor for him, and because I did a favor for you, so you should now return it and do a favor for me. This whole kinah is phrased as a dialogue between Klal Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Yet it doesn't say anywhere in the kinah that we did good for you Hashem, so why are we suffering? So now stop, so now do good for us. Rather, it mentions, it mentions the Degolim, it mentions Harsinai, the Brisbane Abbasarim, it mentions good times that we had with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the times that HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed His love towards us. And it would be like saying to someone, you helped me once, now help me again. What exactly is the Masamat and what is the give and take over here? It should say, we did great for you, now do for us. For example, like we say on Rosh Hashanah and the Zechariness, if you go through with our Psukim, Zecharti Chesed Nurayach, where we're reminding the Abishta where our Ovis or Mechabal, the Om Al-Cheshemayim, where we did for the Ebishter. Seemingly, it should be the same over here. Rabbi Lapiansky explains that imagine a father decides to punish his son. And the son begins bargaining with the father. And he says, you know, I helped you last week finish your work. I helped you with this. I helped you with that. That's not the way for a son to bargain with a father. In a sense, that cheapens the relationship between a father and a son. A deeper child will understand that he should start jogging his father's memory to the moments of Ava, the moments of love, where the father showed love and mercy, where the flow of father to son was the way it should be, where he arouses in the father the sense of fatherhood. And that's very hard for a father to ignore. And that's the idea here, to remind HaKadosh Baruch Hu of the moments of Ava, the moments of love, and try to arouse his mercy that way. But the kinah doesn't end there. Because the kinna goes on and it says, and, not, and you did not recall the covenant between the parts. And every paragraph has its own something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did not recall. And then we end off with different expressions of crying. And we say, Remember Hashem what has befallen us. And the explanation is that there are two ways to ask somebody for a favor. There's a prideful way to ask somebody for a favor. 
do it for me out of love, do it for me out of respect. And then there's a sad, pitiful way to ask for a favor. That if the person doesn't want to do you the favor out of love and he doesn't want to do it for you out of respect, do it for me out of mercy. Do it for me because I'm homeless, I have nothing, I'm penniless. Do it for me, do it for me simply for no other reason than to be nice to me. I noticed last night we say in the Kinna on page 60, we say, One who takes pity on the pauper. See how long our exile has been. Do not be overly angered. Rather, take note of the degradation. And that's the idea of this kin over here. We're saying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if you don't want to do it for us out of love, so zechar Hashem mahayolanu. See Hashem what has befallen us and do it for us out of mercy. We will now move on to Kinatess on page 166, which begins with This Kina, we mentioned the Teichacha before. This Kina actually goes through the Psukim and the Teichacha begins. Right before the Teichacha, the Psukim say the good that will happen to Klai Yisrael if they do go in the ways of Hashem. And the Kina says how those did not really happen. But it goes through the Klolos, and it says how the Klolos did happen. But I like to focus on a different Nekuda, an aspect of this Kina that we say, Eicho Sefarti the Kina begins, Oh, how they have thrown my splendor from my head. 
few pages later we say, Year after year, he added anguish to my mourning. Since the moment he was angered and said, I will shatter the pride of your strength. When we talk about the Ge'oyin, the Ge'oyin Yaakov, we're obviously referring to the Beis HaMikdosh. Take a person who goes through a crisis. What gives the person the strength to keep going, to keep bouncing back? Obviously his resilience. Where does his resilience come from? His resilience comes from his gaiva. When we say gaiva over here, we don't mean arrogance as we loosely translate it. Rather, we mean pride. But imagine you destroy a person's gaiva, a person's pride. His whole system is gone. He would be like a sick person whose body is completely ravaged, trying to recover from an illness. It doesn't work. You don't have anything to bounce back from. There's a difference between the gaiva of a goy and the gaiva of a yid. The gaiva by a goy is gaiva, arrogance, all about himself. For example, take Haman Arasha. His gaiva was all about himself, who he is. But by a yid, we're told it's just the opposite. We're told that Klal Yisrael has gaiva and HaKadosh Baruch Hu has gaiva as well. The Pasuk in Vezoy Sabrocha says, V'asher cherev gavo secha, the sword of your pride. It's saying that Klal Yisrael's pride, Klal Yisrael's gaiva is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And it says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has gaiva as well, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's gaiva is Klal Yisrael. That our gaiva has nothing to do with ourselves, but our, our gaiva is totally about somebody else. And the place where Klal Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu came together was in the Beis HaMikdash. The Oyel Moed was a, is a place of meeting. And that is the idea that the Goyin Yaakov, the pride of Klal Yisrael, was the Beis HaMikdash. Rebbeinu was asked what topic should be discussed the most on Tisha B'Av. And he said the Goyin Yaakov, the pride of Yaakov. Because if you think about it, the Goyin Yaakov, this that we, we lost our pride is an integral part of the Chorban. When the Beis HaMikdash was B'Tefartai, we had our Gaiva, we had our pride. And even if we wanted a little bit, we had our backbone. We had the strength to bounce back. The Ga'in Yaakov was not our luxury. It was our spine. It was our pride. It was who we are. Unfortunately, I don't think any of us have to think hard that, and realize that we're not the Ga'in Yaakov, we're not the pride unto the nations anymore. We don't know what it feels like when Klal Yisrael was viewed as the pride to the nations. There was a time where it was well known to all nations that the Jewish people are Kaddish Baruch Hu's children. And in fact, this is what we mean in the Pasuk that we say last night. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's inhabitants, that the enemy could enter the gates of Yerushalayim. How could Yerushalayim, the center of the world, now sit Vodod? And this is the explanation of what we say over here. That Hosef Yogin al Oin, that of Choshan of Hashan Hosef Yogin al Oin, that year after year he added anguish to my mourning. Because if a pride is gone, every blow that you take, it just keeps getting worse and worse. You don't bounce back. Rather, every hit you take makes everything worse. And because we have lost our pride, therefore, anguish is added. Reb Nassim Vachtogol used to say that the avoid of the nine days is to work on our power of imagination. To think what Yerushalayim and the Mikdash looked like during the glorious times. How the Kehanim dressed in their priestly garments. How the city sparkled with beauty and holiness. How the Levim sang their songs. How the land shone in its splendor. If one can picture this, the idea of the Chorban, the idea of the Chorban of the Beis HaMikdash will definitely shatter him. 
The Pasuk in Yirmiyah says, It's talking about honoring Hashem, having proper covered Shemayim. And the Pasuk says that if you do not heed this, my soul will cry in its hidden chambers because of haughtiness. And the Gemara says, What does this mean because of Geva? Like we just spoke, it's because the pride of Israel that was lost and given to the Goyim. And there are different ways to learn this Gemara, but we'll go like Rashi, who learns literally that because of the Gaiva, the covet of the Malcha Shemayim that was lost as well. That not only do we have pain, not only has our pride been lost, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu as well has the Tsar Shkinta Begalusa, the Tsar that HaKadosh Baruch Hu Shechina is still in Golis. The Chavetz Chaim used to say, why is it that we need to cry so much for Mashiach? He said, is it for Parnasa, that we should all have Parnasa, that those that we know that are sick should get a refuah for Shaduchim? He says, of course that will all happen when Mashiach comes. But if HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants to send you Parnasa now, he could send it without sending Mashiach. Rather, the reason we need to cry for Mashiach is because of the Tsar Shechimta Begalusa, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still in pain in the Golas. And that is a big part of this kinah, that our pride is gone. Our pride and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's pride is gone. And it's truly a tremendous part of the Chorban. God, I room carnival, Hey, come on, give you say, Mikhoinai, the summit, I Eretz <laughs> 
We'll now move on to Kino Yud on page 174. The Kino begins with It's a term used in Shir Hashirim to describe Klal Yisrael. However, this Kino speaks mostly of the terrible suffering of the Kaihanim in particular, since while all of Klal Yisrael suffered because of the Chorban, the Kaihanim felt it the most. Their lives were completely centered around the avoid and the rituals they performed in the Beis HaMikdash. They spent years studying the halachas and how to do special services, and every year they would spend at least two weeks, the Mishmar, serving in the Beis HaMikdash. Therefore, obviously, when the Chorban happened and the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, the Kahanim lost everything. The world totally crumbled around them. And when we, and when we recite this kinah and we realize how attached the Kahanim were to the Beis HaMikdash, we can get a sense of the suffering they experienced as a result of the Chorban. We can realize how irreplaceable the Avoid and the Beis HaMikdash are, and therefore gain an appreciation for what we are missing. There's a story told over that a man once came to Rebaran Kotler, and he said, I don't understand something. Why is it that we are so sad on Tisha B'av? True, we don't have a Beis HaMikdash, but we, we did return to Eretz Yisrael. The holy Eretz Yisrael is now a Jewish country with yeshivas, Bateh Midrashim, and plenty of Yidin living there. Haven't we already experienced part of the Gula? Rebaran responded with a story. He said, during the times of the Chorban, there were two Yidin who were exiled. One was a Kayin and one was a farmer from the Galil. They were both crying bitterly, each one weeping over his life that he had lost. The farmer told the Kayin about the mitzvahs at Fluyus Baaretz that he used to perform, how he gave Trumas and Meisers. He had lost everything. The Kayin cried as well bitterly over the loss of the Avoida that he had performed in the Beis HaMikdash, the utensils that he used to use, the unique carbonus he offered. And they both cried and they said, it is all lost now. A number of years later, the two met again, this time in Italy. The Kayin began to cry again over his loss, and the farmer as well began to cry over his loss. A few years later, they met in Spain again, and the same thing happened. Wherever they would meet each other, they would both cry over their loss. Eventually, the two of them met again in Eretz Yisrael. The farmer came rushing over to the Kayin and he excitedly said, My dear Kayin, I got my donkey back. I claimed my land back. 
I am so happy. To which the Kayan responded, Yes, you may have your donkey, you may have your land, but I am still without the Beis Amigdash. I still can't sacrifice the Karbonus, nor can I perform the special Avoida. You have yours back, I have none of mine. We are still in Gaulus. To truly appreciate and to truly yearn for the coming of Mashiach, the first step is to realize that we're truly in Gaulus. I'm speaking in memory of my grandfather, Rabbi Zev Siegel, so I'll just say over one thing that I heard from my father, that he was a kid and he was driving with my grandfather in the car in Yerushalayim, I believe the year was 1969, the summer of 1969. And they heard the news on the radio, and the, radio, and the news says that the Alaska mosque in Yerushalayim was bombed. Something was thrown at it. And my grandfather wasn't one who often showed outwardly emotion, but at that time, he jumps up and he starts screaming, Mashiach Zaitin, Mashiach Zaitin, Mashiach's coming. He assumed that because the Mokim Amikdash was beginning to be cleared away, for now the Beis Amikdash to come down. And this is something, somebody who had an appreciation of the fact that we're in Golis. And the fact that we're in Golis, now we, now we always have to yearn for the coming of Mashiach. Eicha Yoshva Chavatzelos HaSharoim, Edom Roim Epinaisi Probably <laughs> Reiki is <laughs> 
Again, we welcome everybody, Nachum Siegel Network, to the new Springville Jewish Center Tishabov program. Our next speaker is Rabbi Shlomo Schwartz, who will be speaking words in memory of his father, of David Schwartz. Next kinah is Kinnah Yud Aleph. Um, Kinnah Yud Aleph is notable for being the oldest kinah that we say, and it was composed by the Navi Yirmiyo himself. And the kinah starts off, Vayikainen Yirmiyo al Yeshio. This was the, the lament that Yirmiyo gave over Yeshio HaMelech. And throughout the kinah we, we say the story of Yeshio HaMelech. Um, Yeshua Melech is a very, very tragic figure in our history. He was a king of Kla Yisrael who came along at a time of very, very severe moral decay of the Jewish people. He had not seen a Sefer Torah until 18 years into his reign. His father and his grandfather had both been evil kings. They had brought Avodah Zarah and made it the culture of Eretz Yisrael. And a Sefer Torah was discovered during Yeshio's reign, and the Sefer Torah was opened to the spot, to the spot in the Torah where it says, And when Yeshio heard about this, when he saw this, was the first Sefer Torah he had ever seen, he immediately said, He said, it's our job to uphold the Torah. The Pasuk had said that, Cursed, cursed be those who don't uphold what's written in this scroll. And Yeshia saw the scroll and he said, it's our job to, it's our job to, to uh, do what it says in the Torah, which had not been the reality for the Jewish people for many, many years. And Yeshia fostered a massive tshuva movement throughout Kalal Yisrael. And he, he changed, he changed the, the whole face of what was going on in Eretz Yisrael at the time. And he made it his job, he made it his duty to eradicate Avodah Zarah, idol worship, from the entire land of Israel, among, from among the Jewish people. He was very successful in this endeavor, uh, but not as successful as he thought. So in the Kinnah, it talks about it, it says, Davak b'chet leitzani hadar, ashukamu achar hadelas lisdar. Right, and the article translates that as the sin of the generations scorners, the late sonim, clung to him. 
those who stood idols behind the door. And the Mepharshim explained what that means is that there were, there was people among Klal Yisrael who were very attached to Avayi Dezara. They, they, they didn't want to give up on their idol worship. So what they would do is they would have an idol on the back of a door or between two doors. So when the doors would be opened by the inspectors who Yeshio had, had sent around to, to root out Avayi Dezara, and the, the doors would be opened, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was an Avayi Dezara. It would be disguised. It would be on two halves of the door. The doors would be closed. You wouldn't see it. And then when the doors would, would be closed again, then the, the idol would become intact once again and people would be able to worship it. And this was a secret, uh, 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 surreptitious Avaydazara that, that Yeshio didn't know was going on. His inspectors didn't know what was going on. And what ended up being the tragic mistake was that Yeshio overestimated the, the spiritual quality of his generation. There had been a lot of tshuva, there had been a lot of work done, but not to the level that Yeshio thought. And there came a time when the Egyptians wanted to pass through Eretz Yisrael, and Yeshio felt that at this time, the haftacha of v'cherev losaver ba'artzachem was, was in effect, which is a haftacha from Hashem that, that uh, at a time when the Jewish nation is doing what they're supposed to be doing, they will merit that a, a, a peace so complete that not only will they not be at war with any other nations, but Eretz Yisrael will be so far from any militaristic endeavor that even a foreign army wouldn't, couldn't pass through Eretz Yisrael, couldn't use it for an unrelated war. And the Egyptians wanted to pass through Eretz Yisrael. And Yeshio felt, no, we're at, we're at that madrega of v'cher of le'savar ba'artzachem. And he refused, against the advice of the Nevi'im. And this triggered, this triggered a war against the Jews because of their failure to cooperate with the Egyptians. And Yeshio himself ended up being killed in this war. And with his dying breath, he said, as we, as we, as we mentioned in the, later on in the Kinnah, Ruach Svasav hifza mipiu, Tzadeku Hashem ki marisi piyu. Right, with his final dying breath, what did Yeshio say? He said, it is Hashem who is righteous, for I have disobeyed. Yeshio, a true tzaddik, he, he, was, he was what we call matzdek hadin. He, 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 he saw the righteousness and admitted to the righteousness of Hashem's judgment on him for him to die. Speaking with Zechon was my father, my father for many years, Yitzhak David Akayin, Schwartz, he, 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 uh, he spoke for many years on Tisha B'Av. He led the Tisha B'Av program in his shul and in the Jewish Heritage Center of Queens and Long Island. So I'm, I'm going to say over some of the things that he said. He would say this kind of every year. And, and the theme that he would return to is the view of Yeshio as a, as a potential Mashiach who, who was killed. But unlike other Mashiach figures, most often the dynamic throughout Jewish history is that a desperate nation, a desperate suffering nation, puts their faith in the wrong person. Unfortunately, here we have, we have a, a, a reversal of that script, and we have someone who, who was right to be a Mashiach, somebody who created a massive tshuva movement in Klai Yisrael, who started, who made moves towards build, rebuilding the base of Migdash. He put, his, he put too much faith in an, in an unworthy population. And the lesson that we have, that that, that, that has for us is that you know, we, we, sometimes, we sometimes criticize our G'daylam, too much, we criticize our leaders, and we don't appreciate them, we don't appreciate the leaders we have, and we've lost a lot of leaders over the last few years, we don't appreciate the leaders we have, we criticize them, we second-guess them, and, and we're not worthy of them. It's not that they're not worthy of us, we're not worthy of them, and so there's a lesson we could take from this, Kenna, it's to appreciate the leaders that we have, and, and, and let them lead us, let them do their job. And the Lechem Dima, another thing my father used to quote is from the Lechem Dima, that, that the, the, the usual read on this kinna is that the people were defiant. They, they, you know, they, 
they wanted to, they, they loved Avadazar too much, they didn't want to give it up. But there's another reading on it. There's, there's, there's a way to understand this that, that they loved Yeshio too much. They appreciated Yeshio, and they felt that, they said, he's such a big tzaddik, he's such a big, he's such a, he's such a big leader, that it doesn't matter what we do. We can be soymich on Yeshio, we can be soymich on the tzaddik. And, and we don't need to give up our Avadazar, because we have this, this tzaddik who, take cares, who takes care of us. And they were riding on his coattail, so to speak. And that also has resonance for us. We, 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 you know, there's certain things, shortcut, shortcuts we take in our Vaidas Hashem, in our spirituality, certain, certain things that we, we've made too much, too, too central as part of our Yiddishkeit. And it's important to remember that we need to do the real work. We shouldn't, you know, we have to do, we have to work on ourselves. We can't be saimich on, on shortcuts, on different things that, that people use as a substitute for, for authentic ruchnias. Another point my father used to make was that it says here the, the pasuk we mentioned the, the line we mentioned from the kina ruach svasav piu that the breath of his lips and when we're talking about a mashiach figure we, we can't help but think of the phrase ruach apenu mashiach hashem ruach, a mashiach is usually referred to as ruach apenu the breath of our nostrils the breath of our nose and over here it's called ruach svasav so we know that that vayipach ba'apa nishmas chaim at the moment of creation. The great, the, the the ultimate moment in human history when when human beings were were put on this earth and, and set here in this in this setting to do to do the sacred work that Hashem wanted us to do, it was started off through the nose. That's where that's where the that's where the place of creation happened, and and, and moments of creation are associated with that ruach ruach And the moment when Mashiach will come will be a ruach apenu. Will be a moment of a new reality starting a new a new creation a new a new matziv of 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 completeness in the world, of harmony in the world. But unfortunately, the moment that we're talking about here in this kinna is a tragic moment. It's a moment of, of something dying, of something ending. And that's why it says ruach svasav. It was an exhalation. It was the opposite of a ruach apenu. It was ruach svasav. It was a, it was a, it was a dying exhalation through the mouth, a, a final breath, and, and the dying breath of what could have been a really glorious era for, for Jewish history. Um, one final point before we get to the kinna. You know, just on the, this idea of, of, a, of a hidden avodazara, of a disguised avodazara, and avodazara that can only be seen internally by people. You know, we don't we don't really struggle with avodazara the way that people in this era of Jewish history did. But we all know for ourselves there are things in our in our in our lives that have taken the place of avodazara. And one thing I just want to mention is that you know it's very interesting. The the Torah tells us that kala shaver keli b'chamasa it's kilo oved avodazara. If somebody breaks something when they're angry. It's as if they worshipped an idol. So it's a hard thing to understand why the Torah equates what seems to be just you know, an overreaction, an angry overreaction to one of the worst possible things we can do. But maybe a way to understand it is, is that psychologists tell us that the reason that, the reason that people break things when they're upset is because it's to reassert control. They feel they're upset, something happened that they don't like, and it's given them the feeling that they can't control anything in their life, so they... They throw something on the floor, they, they break something just to show, no, I do have control. I have control over this, over this plate, I can throw it on the floor and break it. And when we think about it that way, we can understand that the Avaidazara is that illusion. The Avaidazara is the illusion of control. When we break a plate because we're angry, when we're so desperate to reassert our own control and the illusion that we control things and not Hashem, we are the Avaidazara, our own ego, our own illusion of control. That's the Avaidazara that we're worshiping. And that's a hidden avodazara. That's internal. That's something ha- that happens in our own mind. So, if there's a lesson we could take from this kinna, maybe to 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 realize whatever internally, whatever 
whatever we're worshiping internally, whatever we're putting too much focus on, that's the Avay Dezara that we should try to that we should try to eradicate from our hearts and, and hopefully bring a, bring about a, a better matzav for for uh, for ourselves and for and for the Jewish people. The next thing we're going to say is Kinyud Beis, Ahali Asher Ta'afta Adlai Veracious. And Kinyud Beis, the form of the Kinah is two questions that are asked in each stanza. The first question that is, uh, that is asked is the ones that start Ahali. Which is which? The first few lines in each in each stanza of the Kinnah talk about the glory of the base of Megdash, miraculous things that happened to the base of Megdash, and then it will say Lama Lenetzach Shudad Biat Shaydim is the first line. It says Why is it forever? Why is it forever plundered in the hands of plunderers? And each line says Lama Lenetzach Tumas Biat Sarim. It, it, it compares, it, it juxtaposes the glory of the base of Megdash, how special and important the base of Megdash was, and it says Why is it seemingly forever? not in that state anymore. Why is it seeming, seemingly forever destroyed, degraded? And the second question that's asked is vinyesa, vinyesa, the lines that start vinyesa, which mean, which is a question about Hashem. It's a question of why do you, Hashem, seem to be, you've become like, the first line, you've become like a lost, a shepherd veiled in mourning over his lost flocks. Now these two questions that we ask as we go through, these two questions are basically unanswered besides for one, one short line uh, at the end where it says, Rifuasi betucha kirega be'apai said, even though my destruct- destruction is engraved on his palm, Hashem's palm, nevertheless my healing is certain. But for the most, that's one short line. For the most part, these are just anguished questions without answers that we're asking. And 
So let's first talk about the lines that say, the lines that start, Lama Lanetzach. Um, you know, we're talking about the Beis Amigdash being biyad tsar, biyad ayev, in the hands of enemies, in the hands of tormentors. And you don't need to think too hard for that line to be very evocative. When we think about the Makam Amigdash in the modern era, it, 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 this line really resonates with us. It's, it's very literal, biyad tsar. But uh, the, second, the second thing that we talk about, there's also a more metaphorical meaning we'll get to, we'll get to that at the end. But uh, the lines that really are striking are the, are the lines that say Vinhiesa, because it's talking about Hashem, and you know, we're human beings, we, we, we need to talk about Hashem, we need to talk to Hashem, but really there's no way to capture the infinite in human language. We just use the tools we have. So when we're talking about Hashem, we're using mushal, dimyan, kinoi, we're using metaphors and that's the only way we have to talk about Hashem. But when we talk about Hashem, usually we talk about, we talk about a father, a king, a judge. We use metaphors of power, metaphors that we think are more fitting, at least to, 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 for us on our level, to talk about Hashem. And the metaphors that the Mekhanin uses here are, 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 are so starkly different from what we're used to that if it wouldn't be written in a kinah, you'd almost be scared to say it. Comparing Hashem to a, to a lonely bird on a roof, saying that Hashem is like a, a shell-shocked soldier, or like a beggar at an inn, these are, these, these, these are very star- starkly and very jarring language that we're using. But, but I think what this really meant to be talking about, is not talking about anything, the reality of Hashem. We're, we're, talking about, we're talking about us, we're talking about our reality. Our job is to be a Merkava, we're supposed to be the, the vehicle for, for godliness in this world. We're supposed to be the agents, the representatives, so to speak, of Hashem. And through our failures through the, through the generations to, to, to live up to a certain standard, this is what we've reduced the idea of godliness to. This is, we've become a shell of what we're supposed to be in terms of, of reflecting of Hashem. So when the Mekayinan here is talking about, the, uh, talking about that v'niyesa k'roi ba'etya or v'niyesa k'tzipa, when it's talking, about, it's talking about what we've made the musig of godliness in this world, what we've made the concept the Chil Hashem that we make, the voiding of Hashem's name, the voiding of Hashem's presence from this world, the, the Mekayinan is calling us out. He's, he's, he's really talking to us when he says that, why is it that this is what Hashem is represented by now in, this, in, in the world? Um, another point that it struck me, uh, you know, it's another aspect of Chorban that maybe we don't talk about so often. Uh, in the Art Scroll, if you have the Art Scroll Kinnis here, you'll notice in the first page in footnote 9, and the second page in footnote 4, it talks about how words in this kinna were changed by censors. And, you know, it's maybe something we don't think about that often, but I think it's a tremendous part of the Chorban that we've dealt with over the years, is the cultural Chorban of, of our taira, our tefillah, our culture, the things that we hold most important, have been in the hands of enemies for thousands and thousands of years. Is there any more mikdash biyatsar than the fact that for, for centuries the church could censor anything, people couldn't print what they wanted, people couldn't say what they wanted. It started really with translation of the Torah many, many years ago when they had to change words in order not to offend a certain king. And it's just continued up until, up until, the very, up until today. We, we, have a, we have a long history of censorship. Baruch Hashem, in our modern era, we don't deal with the same kind of censorship, but definitely here in New York we have starting to feel the stirrings of 
you know, maybe not being able to say what we want in yeshivas, not being able to teach how we want. We've, 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 we've seen the, the first rumblings of that. And, and uh, there's other aspects of Mikdash Biatzar that we deal with now, that in the modern era with, with, with technology and with the way that all our information is out there, we've seen things that are so precious to us, considered so internal, so much a part of our internal culture and, and, and the things that we find, you know, the things that we feel are our are, are foundations have been tossed out into the street. Kabbalah, which is the Pnimi Pnimius of Tyro over the last, I don't know how many years, has been turned into just some subject to be prodded at by dispassionate academics or to be utilized for whatever purpose by, by very vain and superficial people, celebrities. It's a, it's a, it's a real tragedy and, it's a, and it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real example of Mikdash Biatzar. And uh, when, we, when we say this, Kenna, we have to, we should, we should think about all the aspects of Mikdash Biatzar that we know of, the, the physical, literal Mikdash Biatzar and the, and the, uh, and the cultural korban of, of Mikdash Biatzar that's happened over the years. Kenna Yud Bey's Ali Asher Ta'afta. <laughs> Next kinna we're going to say is kinna tazayin. The focus of this tinna is uh, it's called zechar asher asetzar b'fnim. It's the first line, and this kinna kind of zooms in and focuses on a, on on one of the, the the crux of the destruction of the second base of Migdash. and this is the the actions of of the wicked Titus. Titus was the son of Vespasian, and, and he, destroyed, he destroyed the base of Migdash. But like so many other times in Jewish history, you know, a, a military endeavor, a military campaign really was about so much more. It was about, it was about humiliating and utterly, utterly destroying the, 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 the spirit of the opponent. And, and that's particularly true here in this kinna. Titus did... 
Titus did incredibly depraved and degrading things in the Kaddish HaKadoshim, in the, in the holiest place of our, of our, uh, of the base of Megdash. And one of the things it says here, which is that, Nachlaseinu b'yeis ketimei lechem apanim v'gider pereiches balashtei apanim. He struck terror throughout the land of our heritage when he desecrated the showbread, the lechem apanim, and he impaled the two-sided curtain. So Chazal tells us what this means is that, is that he, he stabbed, aside from all the other things that he did in the Kaddish HaKadoshim, he took his sword and he stabbed it into the, into the pereiches. And a nase occurred and blood flowed out of the pereiches. And the Gemara tells us uh, that he thought Haragas Atzmai, which is a Lashon Saginara. We don't, we don't even want to say the misconception that Titus had, but that Titus was under the impression that he had killed the Jewish deity. He was, knew this was the holiest place in the temple. He stuck his sword into the Parechas. Blood came out. For a person with a, a twisted, paganistic view of reality, it was, in his mind, he assumed that he had, that he had killed the Jewish deity. I mean, obviously, what Titus thought was not the reality, but why did this nase occur? Why did blood flow out of, why did blood flow out of the Parechas? What, what was the message for us in that? So, one of the things my father used to say over was, was from, from, from Rav Hutner, that, that uh, we call murder shvichas damim, even when, the spilling of blood, even when there's no blood being spilled, whether, whether a person gets poisoned or, or drowned, it's always called shvichas dam. And murder is, is identified, it's, it's thought of as a, as a spilling of blood. Why, why is that? So in, in Yiddishkeit, we don't, we don't view death as the way other people do, as just the breakdown of a very sophisticated piece of biological machinery. We view death as a divorce. Because life was a marriage between body and soul, between these two seemingly opposed elements that are, that are, are mixed together and, and form a creature that walks through the world as capable of, of thought, of speech, of morality, of living a sanctified life. And the moment when those two things separate, that's what death is. Death is the separation of those two elements, the, the divorce, the, the parting of these two elements that had been together for so long and have been capable of, of incredible things when they were together. And, that's, and, and, and we, we say that ki adam hua nefesh. We view on some level, on some mystical level, that the blood somehow is, is, plays an essential role in, in, in binding those two things together. So when somebody is killed, which means that the body and soul have, have been separated, we call that shvichas damen, because wh- whatever the manner of death was, whatever the manner of murder was, the, the, the result, the Taitzah, what's happened is that there's this tragic separation of body and soul. When Titus stabbed the Parechas, it was the end, it, it, was, the, it was the culminating moment of, of destruction. And there was no death, there was, there, was, there was no death in the way that we understand it, but there certainly was a separation. Hashem had, for many years, when the Beis HaMikdash stood, there was, a, there was a connection, there was a, there was a spiritual connection with the physical world it was, there, there was a hashra sashchina. Hashem's, Hashem's presence could be felt in the Beis HaMikdash. And when Titus destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, that, that presence left. And there was a, there was a connection that, that used to be there that was broken. 
And it was, it was a separation, it was a death. And, and what's dead is the world. The cosmos is dead, the world is dead in the wake of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And that's what that blood hemorrhaging out of the, out of the Parecha signified, was that we now, from, from that moment of destruction onward, we were fated to be residents of a dead world, of a comatose world. And that's something to think about as we go through this, as we go through this, uh, as we go through this kinna, that what is the status of the world we live in today? There's another, another point about this kinna and, uh, and other kinnas. I don't know if we're going to say the next one. The next one is a particularly good example of this. But, but in this kinna as well, and everything that we talk about and we, we read about on Tisha B'Av, it's incredibly graphic and incredibly harsh. We, 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 you know, we talk about things from, from periods in our history that, that we have very little frame of reference for. They're very, it's, it's incredibly harsh depictions of the kind of suffering that, that, that we have no ability really to understand. I think this is this is Badafka, this is it's deliberate and maybe it's 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 been this way for so many years that we talk about the the most harsh things on Tishabov and maybe it's only in our dar that that is that it's come to its full importance. Because we live Baruch Hashem in a very comfortable dar, a very easy dar, and we always talk about on Tishabov that it's hard to understand these things, it's hard to feel these things. And what I think that really might come down to is as Shlomo was talking about before imagination comes down to a failure of imagination, really. You know, most of us, for us, we call the dimyon our imagination. It's usually an escape route out of reality. We're using our dimyon, our imagination, we're using it to fool ourselves, to make, you know, to make big, big pronouncements about our, about our, about our ruchnius, big, uh, you know, big kabbalists that we're going to make, how we're going to improve. And, and our imagination is just a tool to escape. It's just a way to, just a way to disguise the reality of life. We use it to, to come up with you know, big Averis that other people did to us. We build these huge edifices of, of imaginary insults that, that people did to us that were really not meant that way at all. That's what we're using our imagination for most of the time. But the imagination is a two-way street. Sometimes the only way to see the reality is by using your imagination. Sometimes it's, a, it's the only entry point. It's not an escape route. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, there was a Ramesha Shapiro, very close to his death, was very involved in in encouraging people to get involved in, in setting up Kirov schools, outreach schools, to help, to help kids who, who, are not, who are from communities where there's not really a, an educational infrastructure. And he was, he was in a meeting with somebody and he was, he, was really, you know, he was really making the case to the guy and really you know, pleading with him. And he said to this person who he was asking to, to work in one of these schools, he said, you know, there's a train full of kids going to Auschwitz every day. If you can pull one kid off that train, your place in Gan Eden will be incredibly not, not shy, far beyond what I, what I myself will get. That's what Ramesha said. Most of us would say, we're in America, Baruch Hashem, there's no, there's no cattle cars, there's no Auschwitz. But Ramesha was able to, to use his mind's eye to see the reality of the situation, that there is a Chorban going on in this country. Is, is there any greater sword stuck through a Parechas in the state of American Jewry? Are, are we not hemorrhaging the lifeblood of our people every single day? Is that not a Chorban? And when we, when, we, when we read about these korbanas, these horrible, tragic periods in our history, the korban, the, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, the Crusades, whatever it is, when we read about these things, we need to use the, the things that maybe during the rest of the year we wouldn't even be able to stomach. We need to look at them head on and let that use that to spark our imagination, to spark our mind's eye, to see the reality of what we're living through right now. We're living through an era of, of secret korbanas. We need to look 
need to look past the surface level placidity, the surface level peace and, and comfort that we seem to enjoy here, and we need to use our mind's eye to be real on Tishabav and to see the real Khurbanas that are going on. I just want to end off before we say the kinna with something from the Kuzri to maybe connect some of the themes we've talked about for this kinna and to end on a somewhat hopeful note. The Kuzri talks about how the base of, he, in, in his explanation of, of the Makam Amigdash, he talks about how he, he uses to explain it a muscle of a human body. So I'm just going to read, I'll, I'll try to translate it as I go. So the, the, the Kuzri says to the Chavar that he said, You've explained to me everything that, that in the Mikdash that corresponds to the human body, except the head, the, the head and the heart. The head and the heart. So what the Chavar responded was that the head and the heart was the Aran and the Luchas that were in the Aran. So the Kuzri asks a heartbreaking question to the Chavar. He says, if that's the case, that the Aran and the Luchas is our head and our heart, he says, today we're like a headless and heartless corpse. Without the Aran, without the Besam Mikdash, we're like a dead body with no head, no ability to have any sensation or sense, and no heart. The Chavar responds to the Kuzri, he says, he says, it's true what you're saying, but it's even worse. He said, not only are we a headless and heartless corpse, but we're a dismembered corpse. We're, 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 we're scattered all over the world. We're, we're, we're separated one from the other. We're like a body that's been chopped up and, 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 and discarded and thrown out like garbage. But he says, however, he says, these these scattered limbs, this, this dismembered body that, that currently is the, the Jewish people, that has something in it, that has something in it from, from a body that was once alive. He said, it's better that, that this body that was once a seat for something living, it's better than all the perfect, perfectly sculpted bodies and the perfectly intact bodies made of stone and marble that never once had the spark of life in them and that will never have the capacity to have life in them once again. What, what, what he's talking about here is the fact that you know, we find ourselves in a shattered state. We find ourselves in exile, spread out, under the control of others. And we see our, our, our building, our, our place is totally destroyed. And we see the seats of government of other places, seats of government, the corporate headquarters, are beautiful big buildings, totally intact. But what, the Kuzari, but the, what he's saying here is, is that we may, be, we may be shattered and broken, but we once held life in us, and we will hold life in us once again. And we understand this from our, from our Messiah, from the level of our Messiah, about Tchias HaMesim, and, uh, and even, even, even in modern science, we know that you can isolate DNA in a, in a, in a living, in a, in, a, in a scrap of biological matter, and you could, you could reconstitute it. So we have to, what we have to think about here on Tisha B'Av is that, yes, we're shattered, yes, we're broken, but we are shyach to life. We once had life in us, and we will Hashem, have life, life in us once again, whereas all the other things that we see around us that are fully built up never had life in them and never will see life in them. So if we just end off, before we say the kinah, as we're sitting here today together on Tisha B'Av, the Kutzker famously said that there's nothing more complete, there's nothing more whole than a broken heart. There's certainly nothing more whole than a community that sits together and shares a broken heart. And that's what we're trying to do around on Tisha B'av, and let's hope that this is the, the first step to bring the Gula Shlema. Kinnatas Zion. Zachar Shah Zachar Shah Sitzar Bifnim, Shalafar Bifnim, Shalafar Bifnim, 
Continue. We again thank everybody for joining us. Nachum Siegel Network. We thank ZK for being here, making sure that everything is going smooth. And we will continue the New Springville Jewish Center Tishabov program with hearing words from our dear friend Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, in memory of his grandfather, Rabbi Lyakum Kovacs. <coughs> As was just mentioned, there are certain kinos that are very, very difficult to read. Not difficult because intellectually they're hard to understand, but rather they're difficult because it's hard to comprehend, it's hard to wrap the mind around how low in, it, it became at the time of the famine, at the time of the Churban Beis HaMikdash, that people could sink so low, as the Kinnah describes in grotesque and graphic detail, Kinnah Zion that we're about to read, how women would be forced, because of the famine, to butcher Le'alenu, their own children, and eat their flesh. The Kinnah goes on to describe how not only that, but it was so bad that women would make deals with each other. We'll eat my child today, we'll eat your child tomorrow. And then they deceived each other. The next day the child was already eaten by the mother. And Yermia begs to know the understanding. He asks the question, why is this happening? How could it be that things have deteriorated so much? that we've gotten to this state. And if you look at the end of the Kinnah, Ruach HaKodesh, a voice calls out and says, it's because you killed in the Beis HaMikdash the Navi V'Koyhein, the Navi Zechariah's 
one of the kinos later describes in greater detail, 250 years before the Churban Beis HaMikdosh, Zechariah came to rebuke the Jewish people. Not only didn't they listen to him, but they murdered him, they killed him. The truth is that this kinah is really based on a pasuk, Parashas Bechukaisai, in the Teichacha, in the curse, the admonishment, the Torah says, Vachaltem, Vesar Beneichem, Vesar Beneichem Teichelu. You're going to come to a point where the famine, the suffering is going to be so bad, you're going to eat your children, your own, the flesh of your own children. But there's a medrash over there, and the kinah is partially based on this medrash. I'd like to read the words, it's a short medrash. It says that the kinah is really based on one specific person, one specific episode. Amrullah al Daig ben Yosef Shemais, there was a man living at the time of the Khurban. His name was Doig ben Yosef. He passed away, he died, and he left a widow. He left a widow and one only child. And this mother loved the child so much. Every single year she used to measure the child with hand breaths, with her hand. And she would give his weight in gold over to the Beis HaMikdash. When the enemy surrounded the fortress of Jerusalem, she butchered this child and she ate him. And on that, Yermia laments and he says, Is this what happens? Women who have to eat, the ones that they raised with tender care, but it's a play on the word, is like the word tefach, the handbreast, the ones that, was, that were measured with their hands. Ends the Medrash, Meshiva Ruach HaKodesh Vaimeres, the voice of Hashem calls out and says, Im Yeharik B'mikdash Hashem Koin V'Novi, Ben Yoyada Koin, like we mentioned, that this was all retribution for the heinous murder of Zechariah. I saw in a Sefer Ber Yosef from Rabbi Yosef Salant, he speaks about this, this kina, and he asks the following two questions. Number one, why was Yermia so shocked? It's a Pasuk in the Torah, as we said. There's nothing shocking about it. It was a Nevoah. This was a fulfillment of the Nevoah. How come Yermia couldn't understand what was going on? Number one. Number two is, where is the Mida Keneged Mida? Where is the punishment that's measure for measure that because... Israel, 250 years before the Churban killed Zechariah, so therefore they should be demoted to this level where they have to eat the flesh of their own children? How is that a punishment that fits the crime? So Rabbi Yosef Salant, part of it is his own answer, and part of it he says is an answer that he heard when he was a child in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Petterberger, Rabbi Yitzchak Blazer, and he says the following, every parent loves their child. There's no question. Some a little bit more, some a little bit less. But there's a natural ava, there's a natural love that a parent has for a child. And so this curse of that you'll eat the flesh of your own children, it could have been fulfilled with any parent. By any parent, if they would have had to succumb to this level of depravity, that would have been a kiyam already of But look at where it got to. This woman, 
the widow of Dayeg ben Yosef, who loved her child with an extraordinary kind of love. In fact, the Gemara Yuma has a different nusach, has a different version on the Medrash, and it says that it wasn't every year that she would give his weight in gold to the Beis Hamikdash. It was every single day. She would measure her handbreast and she would give his weight in gold every single day to the Beis Hamikdash. It's almost an abnormal expression of love. And for that kind of person, Yermia says, for this type of woman, if you look at the beginning of the Pasuk, it says, to whom? Look at to whom you did it. The kiyam, the fulfillment of this curse had to come about in a way, in a, with a woman who had such an extraordinary type of love for her child. How could it be, says Yermia? And on that, Ruach HaKadosh answers, you're wondering about what's going on over here. That the kiyom of this curse could have happened through a standard expression of love. You know what happened in the Beis HaMikdash? Murder is a terrible crime with whoever it's committed to. Whoever the victim is. It's one of the worst averis. But look what Kalal Yisrael did. They didn't just murder an ordinary person. The Medrash tells us that Zechariah, he was the son of the king. He was the Kayin Gadol, high priest. He was a prophet. He was a dayan. He was a judge. They killed a person like that. Where did they kill him? Not in some place, not on an alley corner. They killed him in the Azara of the Beis Hamikdash, in the courtyard of the Beis Hamikdash. And when did they kill him? Says the Gemara, they killed him on a Yom Kippur that fell out on a Shabbos. So it was a murder of an incredible person, of a manhigadar, of the leader of generation, in the holiest place, on the most holy time of year. And that was the Midah Keneged Midah over here. But it runs a little further. And he says, Why does HaKadosh Baruch Hu send us a Navi? What was the tafkid of Zechariah was to come to rebuke the Jewish people that they should do tshuva, they should repent, they should realize what is their wrongdoing. What happened? Not only did they not listen to him, but they killed the messenger. It wasn't just that they didn't listen to the message. They killed the messenger. They turned everything around. And on that comes this mida connected mida. Suffering, famine, difficulties in life are supposed to make a person better. They're supposed to challenge you to do tshuva, to make you better, to be mamarek, to purify a person. Never think about this woman. The almana, the widow of Daig ben Yosef. What kind of charata she must have had that the suffering of her famine not only didn't cleanse her to make her better, but a few hours later, maybe a day later, the charata she must have had about the terrible, terrible crime that she did to kill, to butcher her own child, to eat its flesh. And what did it do for her? She's still hungry a couple hours later. So in the surah and the suffering, not only didn't it help her, but it made her sink even lower and lower. And that's something that we have to think about as we read, as we read this Kino Kinyot Zion. Difficult things happen. Messengers come to us. Don't kill the messenger, but listen to the message. Kinyot Zion.
The Kalir tries to draw a contrast between the original closeness of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, and the Beis HaMikdash to Hashem, Throughout history, we see, as the Kino describes, the promise to Yaakov Avinu taking Klal Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, splitting the Yamsuf, building the Beis HaMikdash, which is the apple of Hashem's eye. And if you look in the Kino, it talks about, based on a Gemara, how the Beis HaMikdash was actually built before the creation of the world. Hashem was Mechavanet, he built it corresponding to the physical Beis HaMikdash that we had. And at each step in the Kinnah, it describes how even though those promises to the Avos happened, and even though we were taken out of Mitzrayim, all of this was taken away from us. There was a closeness that we had, and now there is a tremendous, tremendous gap. And Yermia, the Kaler, speaks about it. Yermia asks it in a question form. How could it be? How could it be these things happened, the exalted state of Bnei Yisrael, and now we are so low? And at the end of the Kinnah, the answer is given because of the Averus. Closing words of the Kinnah is that it's basically all our fault. Why are we lamenting and talking since all of this has befallen us because of our guilt? Revolba, in the Sefer Ali Shor, quotes from his Rebbe, he says a very interesting thing. Tishabov is known as a Yamtiv. Kikara Alai Moyed. He says that there's two types of Yamim Toivim. There's a Yamtiv of closeness to Hashem, and that's the Shalosh Regolim, 
Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot. These are Yamim Taifim where we feel the closeness to Hashem. But then he says there's a Yomtiv of Richuk. There's a Yomtiv that's established based on distance from Hashem. And that's the Yomtiv of Tishabov. Because as he says, there's only one thing that's even worse than being rachaik, than being distant from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, And that's not even realizing how distant you've become. So we need a yomtiv, a yomtiv of Tishabov, a yomtiv of Richuk, to take stock and to stop the excuses and to start realizing and doing a little bit of introspection to understand how we've gotten to that state. Yermia himself, if you look at Sefer Yermia, he goes to Klal Yisrael and he says, Eich toimru, loinit meisi, how is it that you people, Klal Yisrael, you keep saying there's nothing wrong? Before the Churban Bayis Rishon, you have an excuse for everything. The Shvichas Damim, the murder is not really murder, and the Avodah Zar is not so bad, and the immorality, the Gila Arayis, there's a Pshat for that. Stop giving the excuses, Yermia says to Klal Yisrael. And so as we go through this Kina, we have to ask ourselves, what exactly is it that we miss so much about having the Beis HaMikdash, when we had that Beis HaMikdash. If you go to any child, child in kindergarten, and you say, where is Hashem? Where is Hashem? Hashem is here. Hashem is there. Hashem is everywhere. So what are we missing by not having the Beis HaMikdash? We have Hashem. Hashem is with us. Hashem is here. What do we need a Beis HaMikdash for? Very powerful question. What's the answer? The answer is, of course, Hashem is everywhere. And if you look in the rabbinic literature, there's different terminologies that's used for this. Hashem is mamala kol olmim. Hashem is soivib kol olmim. But what we're missing by not having the Beis HaMikdash is the feeling of closeness. What do I mean? When you would walk into the Beis HaMikdash, there were no distractions. Everywhere else in the world, where Hashem is, of course, Hashem is present there. But you can't feel it. It's like listening to a, a radio station where there's static. Once in a while you could hear like one line coming through. You could maybe decipher what's going on. And that still happens in our lives. It could happen at a di- different times throughout a person's life. He feels a strong connection to Hashem. Maybe it's when he's standing under a chuppah. Maybe it's when he's standing in shul by kol nidre. Maybe it's a woman when she's lighting Shabbos candles. But it comes in, it goes out. It doesn't last. It's not something where you could have access to at any time you wanted. In the Beis HaMikdash, you could walk into the Beis HaMikdash, you could walk up the stairs of the Beis HaMikdash at any single moment, and we did it during the Shalash Regalim, and there was no static, and there was no noise. All you felt was a connection that was a thousand times the connection you could feel at any point today. At the most inspiring moment that a person has in their life today, he could feel that at any moment when you would walk up the stairs and you would go to the Beis HaMikdash. And what was the proof to that? The proof to that, my friends, is anybody that was, that's in this room or listening, if you've ever walked through the Ir you've ever walked through the old city of Yerushalayim, and you come and you come to those steps that are just above the Kosal Plaza, especially if you haven't been there in a long time, and you see the Mokram HaMikdash, and you see the Kaisal HaMarovi, and you see that it's lying in the ruins. And there's, such, there's a feeling. It's your neshama is tugging at you. 
it's a feeling in your heart that you can't really put into words. There's no lexicon that can describe it. But that was the feeling 1,000-fold that you would feel when you would walk into the Beis HaMikdash. Imagine how intense that could be. Imagine how everlasting that could be. How the inspiration would stay with a person. And that's what we're missing. Baruch Hashem, we could go and we could get that inspiration and we could visit and we could travel and we should, of course. But it's not the same. Baruch Hashem, it's better than it used to be. My grandmother, Allah Shalom, used to talk about how when she was growing up in Hungary, to go visit Yerushalayim was like a dream. It was like a fantasy. Nobody ever visited Yerushalayim. Nobody ever went. If you went, you weren't going to come back. It meant you went to, to move there. She used to tell me how the Rav in her little shtetl in her little town in Hungary once went with the president of the shul to Eretz Yisrael. They went for like four months and they came back and that's all they were talking about for years was about their trip to Yerushalayim. It was a fantasy. And we could do it today. But it's nothing near what we had during the times of the Beis HaMikdash. And as we read this kinah, that's what we have to think about. Let's remember how we got here. Why we got here. And what does it mean that Tishabov is a yomtiv of Richuk? It's a yomtiv of distance. A yomtiv in a time that we have to think about, introspect about, and feel what it meant to have the Beis HaMikdash. Can you have we're going to go now to Kinnah of Gimel, number 23. Kinnah of Gimel is based on a story. 
In the Gemara and Gita, in a well-known story, the son and daughter of the famous Kohen Gadol, Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, were taken captive by the destruction of the second base Hamikdash, each taken captive by a different officer. And the Gemara explains how the two of them bumped into each other one day in a marketplace, and one said to the other, you wouldn't believe the beautiful, attractive girl that I have, that I've taken captive. And the other one said, you wouldn't believe how handsome the captive that I took is. And they had an idea with each other that they'll put them in a room together, they'll marry them off to each other, they'll have children who will obviously be handsome and they could fetch a good sum. And they'll split the profits. That was the idea that they had. The Gemara says, they put them in a dark room. And as you go through the kinah, you'll see what each one was saying to themselves. How could it be I, the son of the Kohen Gadol, should marry this shivcha, this maidservant? And she was thinking the same thing along the same lines. How is it possible somebody who descends from Aaron HaKoyen should be placed in such a difficult situation, should stoop so low. And in the morning time, they recognized each other, brother and sister. They embraced the go, their neshamas left them because of the sadness of the moment, because of the sadness of the experience. And of course, it's a terrible story. It's a sad story. It's a story that Yermia, as the Gemara says, cries about but the question is, why is it that this story is emblematic of the Chorban Beis HaMikdash? What is it about this story that captures the tragedy of the Chorban Beis HaMikdash? There are probably many similar stories. Why is this one the focus of the lament of Yirmiya Anavi? I'd like to share with you a beautiful story that I just heard from Rabbi Avram Shulman. He said that in Eretz Yisrael, there was a girl, her name was Riva. Unfortunately, this girl, she was raised in a religious home, but unfortunately she left the fold, as they say. She had gone very distant. She had met a boy from a different religion, and she was engaged to marry him. She was going to assimilate. Her mother was very understandably distraught. She tried to talk her out of it, but nothing helped. She couldn't get her to change her mind. What's she supposed to do? So she decided she's going to take her to Rebetzin Kanievsky, Alea Shalom. Finally, this girl agrees to go to Rebetzin Kanievsky. They go to B'nai Brak, to the famous house of the Kanievskys. And they start talking. And at some point in the conversation, the mother pulls Rebetzin Kanievsky aside and she explains to her the situation of what's going on. And Rebetzin Kanievsky says, of course, I'll talk to her, I'll, I'll see what I could do. So she pulls aside this girl privately, this Riva, and she starts talking to her and she says, you don't realize what kind of mistake you're making. We have such a beautiful tradition. You're going to come to regret it, etc., etc. And she goes on and on for a long time. And finally, this Riva, who's Taking it all in, she says, you know, Rebetzin, I can't go back on my decision. I've made up my mind already. I'm engaged. I'm going to stay engaged. 
but I feel your sincerity. I feel your warmth. And because of that, I'm willing to accept one mitzvah. You decide which mitzvah. What, give me one mitzvah that I should do every day, and I'll do that one mitzvah. So the Rebetzin thinks for a second, and she says, okay, the mitzvah I would like you to do is say one paragraph of Tehillim every single day. So the girl says, okay, one paragraph of Tehillim. Not so difficult. I can handle that. No problem. She gets up to leave. And as she's about to leave, the Rebetzin says to her, you know what? Since you made the commitment today, it would make sense that we should say one Tehillim, pick up Hitzel Tehillim right now together. Let's do it today. Okay, no problem. The Rebetzin pulls out a Tehillim. And I don't know if this is Shkacha Pratis or Rebetzin knew Tehillim backwards and forwards, Mestama. But she opens up to a Tehillim, Kapitel Mem Gibel, number 43. Remember, this girl's name is Riva. And the Pasuk in the Kapitel Tehillim starts out, Shoftani Eloikim Veriva Rivi, Avenge me, Hashem, and champion my cause. Migoy loy chosid, against a nation that's unkind. And this girl is thinking to herself, oh my goodness, this paragraph in Tehillim, it's talking to me. She could barely go on, but she continues the Pasuk with the Rebetzin. Me'ish mirma va'avla sifalteni, deliver me from a man of deceit and iniquity. And she breaks down crying, this girl. She can't even get to the next Pasuk. And she says to the Rebetzin, I see. I see God is talking to me. I see I have to change my decision. And she changed her decision. And perhaps that's the pshat over here. I was thinking that maybe this is why your Miyahu was complaining, was crying about this story. Because the Chorban Beis HaMikdash, terrible, horrible destruction. But there was at least a glimmer of hope that the memory of the Beis HaMikdash would stay in the holy Mishpachos Yisrael, in the families of Klal Yisrael, as long as there would be a, a strong, firm family structure, the memory of the Chorbon would be able to live on. But look what happened here. Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, the Kohen Gadol's own children, how they could have built beautiful families, beautiful Mishpachos Yisrael. But look, they're taken captive. The family structure was now ruined. There's no more hope for even a memory of the Beis HaMikdash. And that's why this tragedy was so emblematic of the Chorban. Because it would mean that there's no continuity. But we know that was not the case, Baruch Hashem. The God of Kalal Yisrael doesn't sleep and does not slumber. And there's always hope. And I'll leave you with a thought from Rabbi Yaakov Meir Shechter. He says a beautiful explanation in the Pasuk when Basia, the daughter of Paro, saw baby Moshe floating in the river. So the Pasuk says, Vatiftach vatir She opened up the casket and she saw the child, There was a child who was crying. She said, this is a Jewish child. All of the commentaries ask, all the Farshim say, how did she know this was a Jewish child? There's many answers given to that question. But says Rabbi Yaakov Meir Shechter, it was because of the way he was crying. There was a child crying. When a Jew cries, he doesn't cry out of despair. He doesn't cry out of abandonment. He doesn't cry out of a sense of Yish that Hashem has left him. He cries a cry of hope. And when she saw and she heard baby Moshe, she realized, this is a different kind of cry. 
This is a cry that has a ring of tikva. There's a ring of hope in this cry. And that's why she said, This must be a Jewish child. Because when a Yid cries, he cries with the hope, the hope that the Beis HaMikdash will return, the hope that Mashiach will come speedily in our days. We continue with the new Springville Jewish Center Tishabov program here in Staten Island. Our next speaker is Yeshiva of Yeshiva Gedoyla Or Chodosh in Seagate, WLEO Sunshine. Kina 26 is a kina that was written based on an episode, a conversation that took place that's brought in the Medrash and Eicha, where the Rabbeinu Shalaylam tells Yirmiyah Anavi that he should go to the Kvarim of the Avos, he should go to Ma'ara Samachpela, he should go to Moshe Rabbeinu, and he should ask them to stand up and to cry for their children. Ask them to stand up and to plead a case that there should be a geula for their children who are sitting in destruction, that children who are sitting in the ashes mourning. Go and ask the Avais to come plead a case for me. Ask the Avais, ask their fathers, their forefathers, the Miastim, the founders of our nation, Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe Rabbeinu, to come and plead a case that there should be a geula, there should be an end to the pain. 
And the Medrash tells us how Avram Avinu comes and he tries to bring a schus, a merit, why his children should be redeemed. And he's instantly shut down. Yitzchak Avinu comes. He tries. He's also quieted. Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu. They're all quieted almost the instant they, that they begin to talk. Their schusim, their merits aren't worthy of redemption for their children. And the Medrash tells us how at the end, Rachel Imenu, the Mama Rachel stands up and she tells the Rabbeinu Shalolim, you know, you know that I gave over the Simonim, I gave over the codes to my sister. I was supposed to marry Yaakov Avinu. My evil father, Lavan, switched me with my sister Leah. And though it was my right to marry her, I didn't want to, to marry him, I didn't want to embarrass my sister. I didn't want to embarrass Leah, and I gave her the Simonim. I gave up on a, on a Shidduch with Yaakov Avinu. Is there a greater, is there a greater husband than Yaakov Avinu? I, grave, I gave up on the greatest Shidduch ever. I gave over the Simonim to my sister Leah so she can have him, so that she shouldn't be embarrassed. Such a mysterious nefesh. And instantly the Rabbi Nishleilam responds, Miyad. Because of you, because of this tremendous chus of giving over the Simonim to Leah, there will be a future for your children. Because of you, you need not cry anymore. Because of your tremendous chus of giving it to Leah, for that there will be a geula. And there needs an understanding over here in this medrash. Certainly, Certainly giving over, giving up on a, on a zivu, giving up on a shidduch, giving up on a spouse like Yaakov Avinu to a sister is a tremendous, tremendous mysterious nefesh that's giving up a tremendous amount, more than anyone can be asked to do. But Avram and Yitzchak came with something worthy also. Avram was ready to give up his only child, the only child he would ever have. He was ready to slaughter him on a mizbeach to bring him as an oila to the Rabbeinu Shalalem. His ben yechidi, his eternity, his everything, the mark that he would make on the world. He was ready to give that up and Yitzchak was ready to go willingly. Is that something to be knocked away, to be shut down? Avram and Yitzchak say, Rabbeinu Shalalem, we were ready to do the akeda, akedas Yitzchak, and the Rabbeinu Shalalem doesn't want to hear of it. But Rachel is ready to give up on a spouse and that's instantly answered. I would imagine that if one would ask a mother and a wife to make the extremely painful decision of giving up on their spouse or giving up on their only child, as painful as it would be, I think that every woman would hold on to their child. Every woman would hold on to that ben yachid, their mark on the world, their everything, their eternity. Was it a greater mysterious nefesh, what Rachel gave up, than what Avram and Yitzchak were ready to give up? The truth is that in terms of Mesiris Nefesh, in terms of what was given up, it is possible that Rachel didn't give up the same amount that Yitzchak or Avram was ready to give up. It could be that on the scale of what weighs more in terms of what was given, it could be Avram and Yitzchak gave more. And if what the Rabbeinu Shalom was looking for was Mesiris Nefesh, certainly Avram and Yitzchak would have been answered before Rachel. But there's an added dimension here. There's an added dimension to the mysterious nefesh of Rachel that we're not addressing. 
Avram and Yitzchak were ready to be Meiser Nefesh, they were ready to give up their everything to the Rabbeinu Shalelem. They were ready to bring a carbon to Hashem. Rachel Imenu was standing there. She had a sister. Two great people, Rachel and Leah. And they knew at the time that there were two brothers that lived somewhere else. And their names were Yaakov and Esav. And at the time they knew that their destinies were intertwined. They knew that Rachel was the zivuk for Yaakov and she was osed liyos. She was destined to be the aim of Yisrael, the mother of Klai Yisrael. And Leah was to marry Esav and become the mother of Edom. Rachel didn't give up an oila to Hashem. Rachel didn't give up a carbon to Hashem. Rachel gave up her future, her asid, her glorious destiny, the most glorious destiny there would ever be, being the mother of the Shivtaika, being the mother of the Shvatim, being the mother of Klai Yisrael. She was ready to give up what was rightfully hers, what she was owed, what she was promised what Yaakov worked for, what they yearned for, what they looked forward to. She gave that up to give it to her own sister so she shouldn't be embarrassed and then live a life of watching someone else live in the role that was rightfully hers. That's not a mysterious nefesh, that's not an oil to Hashem. That's an uprooting. That's a ridding oneself of any sense of kinah, any sense of rights, any sense of it's about me. The kinah that had to be uprooted over there, was so miraculous. Rachel stands up and says, maybe Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, maybe what they were willing to give up is not enough to be miskalgel Rachamov to bring a geula. But Rabbi Nishalaylam, you brought a churban. You brought a churban because there was Avodah Zarah. And when there's Avodah Zarah, idol worship, the Rabbi Nishalaylam becomes a keil kanoi, a god of revenge, a god of... Of, of jealousy, there's a kinna towards the Avodah Zarah. Stands up Rachel and says, I did not feel any kinna whatsoever, and I'm made of flesh and blood. Rabbi Nishalaylam, you're the great God, you also shouldn't feel any kinna. The uprooting f- that from oneself, the uprooting any sense of jealousy, any sense of it's about me from oneself, that's what brings Geula, that's what talks to Chorban, that's what rebuilds the ruins. There was a younger man, Rabbi Aaron Baxt, who became one of the Ga'oinei Torah in Klal Yisrael from a few days ago. And he was offered the job by the altar of Slabotka to become the Slabotka Rosh Yeshiva. The Slabotka Yeshiva is one of the most prestigious yeshivas that ever, have ever existed. Much of Torah Jewry today was established and th- those who are responsible for it are those who are the products of Slabotka. He was offered the job to become the Rashiva of Slabotka. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, perhaps once in many lifetimes. And he spoke with the altar, and the altar offered him the job, and he said he needs to give it some thought. He returned to the altar, and he told him that he doesn't think he can take the job. And the altar asked him, don't you want the job? He said, certainly I want the job. The mark that I can make, the fertile ground that I can plant with Torah, is more fertile here than anywhere else, any other opportunity I'll ever have. The amount of Messiah Satira that can take place over here is greater than any opportunity I'll ever encounter ever again. Certainly I want it, but I can't take it. Let me explain. When I was young, I got engaged to a girl. She was a young orphan whose father left in the will that her daughter, his daughters, 
should only marry the greatest Talmud HaChacham. And the Almana, the widow, went about and found the greatest Talmud HaChachamim for their daughters. One of them married Rabbi Issa Zalman Meltzer. The other one married another Goyen from Europe. And the third one I got engaged to. Rabbi Aaron Bax, certainly fitting the bill of being a Goyen in Torah, got engaged to the third daughter. Perhaps it was the middle daughter. And at some point during the engagement, the mother-in-law broke off the Shidduch because she felt that I wasn't worthy. She felt that I wasn't Kulay Torah, I wasn't 100% Torah, she felt I wasn't worthy to marry her daughter. She wanted someone who was stronger in Torah. And that girl ended up going and marrying Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Epstein, who became one of the Gedele Hadar, one of the Ga'inei Torah, Alamdin Atzum, Rabbi Moshe Mordechai Epstein. I went to find out if this Almana is still alive. Is this widow still alive today? Because if she's still alive, she's going to have pain, she's going to have tsar in this, that the person that was engaged to her daughter, whose shidduch she broke, became the Slabatka Shiva. I can't cause a widow that kind of pain. I can't take the job if it will cause her that pain. But I have someone in mind who can take the job, who fits the bill perfectly. A big guy who for one reason or another doesn't have a shteller, he doesn't have a position. His name is Moshe Martche Epstein, the person that married the Kala who broke off the shidduch with him. And that's what happened. Ramayisha Marat Epstein became the Slabat Kirishashiva. That capacity is the capacity of someone who has the DNA of Rachli Menu in them. The Mir Yeshiva found itself on the border of Arab territory during one of the wars in Eretz Yisrael. And it was attacked many times. Many times the building shook. It was a frightening time. The area was bombarded and many times the, the building pushed shook from the bombs. And everyone in the yeshiva and everyone in the surrounding areas would gather in the basement, would gather in the, it was like a miklat, it was like a makeshift bomb shelter. They would gather over there. They would say to Hillam. And when the war was over, the mere yeshiva was, was safe and it was secure. Nothing had happened. It was frightening many times, but nothing had happened. They survived. And everyone said that the merit of the Torah that was learned in the mere yeshiva is what saved it, what protected it from the onslaught of bombs. But Chaim Shmulevitz, the Rosh Hashiva, said that he believes there was another schus that saved the yeshiva. There was a woman that lived right next to the yeshiva, an older woman, who was miserable in every way. She was an aguna. She was someone whose husband had walked out on her years earlier without leaving her a get, leaving her in that horrific, gut-wrenching situation in life where she could never move on in any direction. And she was taka miserable because of it. She was in pain and she acted as such. And during one of the bombings, this woman went running into the mirror for safety and she ran downstairs. And as the building shook, she stood up and she cried out, Hashem, my husband who left me so many years ago, who abandoned me in pain, who left me in a situation that I can never get past, who left me in a situation that my cheeks are more wet than they are dry, a man who left me in a pathetic situation, a life that no one wants to ever live. My husband did this to me years ago. The pain is real, but I forgive him. I forgive him, believe Shalim, with all my heart, I forgive him. I let it go. I let go any of the tightness. Hashem, forgive us. Forgive us, let go of the tightness. Let go of the pain that we caused you. Let go of it and let's thrive. Let's thrive together. Let's get past this. And Reb Chaim Shmulevet said he believes that that was the schus. 
That was the schos ultimately that was matil, that protected and saved the mere yeshiva. Churban and geula is not about merely what we give up. Sometimes it's easier to give up more to the Rabbi Shalom than to give up less to someone else. And when we talk about the schos of rebuilding, when we talk about what it takes to get past Churban, to embrace geula, the very first place that we need to work is not on what we're willing to give up, but what, our, what we're willing to uproot from within ourselves. Kinna 27, it's often pointed out, should really precede Kinna 26. The order should really be switched. For whatever reason, it was put in this order. But Kinna 27 ends with Yirmiya being instructed to go to the Kvarim of the Avais that we mentioned before. If I can, I'd like to read the way the Medrash brings this instruction and why Yirmiya was told that he, his crying isn't enough. He needs to go and awaken the crying of the Avais. Says the Medrash, Omer HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yirmiyo, HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Yirmiyo, Ani doyme hayoyim, I am compared today la'odam shehoyuloi ben yechidi, to a man that has an only child, v'osoloi chupa, and I made for him a chupa umeis b'toy chuposay, and he died under his own chupa. That's the way the Rabbi Nishalaylam was comparing himself and his feeling of the destruction that he brought to Klal Yisrael, the Ben Yochid of the Rabbi Nishalaylam, the Meis Tachas Chupasai. And don't you feel the pain, Yirmiya? Don't you feel the pain for me and don't you feel the pain for my children? Go and call to Avram, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov, and to Moshe from their Kvarim, 
because they know how to cry. There are two words here that I want to be aimed on, that I want to speak about for a few minutes. And that is, to know how to cry. The wisest of all men said, there's a time to cry. Often crying is viewed as a spontaneous thing that happens. It's just something that's sort of the, the, the situation brings about tears, sometimes seen as an embarrassing act to let the tears flow. Crying is, is something that happens. It's a byproduct of certain situations and certain things that bring it about. But Shleima Melech said that there's an ace livchais. There's a time to cry. And the Medrash here tells us that there's something called Eyodeya Livchais. The Avais knew how to cry. They knew how to do it. There was a Chachma to this. There's a wisdom. There's a method to crying. There's a purpose for crying. It's not just an expression. It's not just an emotion. But crying is a Chachma Amuka. There are those who are Yodim Livchais. Yirmiya Hanavi was not a Yodeya Livchais. He didn't know how to cry. We had to go to Avram, to Yitzchak, to Yaakov, and to Moshe because they knew how to cry. What does it mean to know how to cry? What does it mean a time to cry? And why is it a good sign to cry? The Pasuk tells us in Shmois, at the breaking point of Kla Yisrael, Vayihi Vayomim Horabim Oheim, Vayomos Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt died, Vayayonchu Bnei Yisrael Min Ho'avoida Vayizaku, and Bnei Yisrael felt the weight of the Avoida, they groaned from it, and they cried out, and their cries were brought to the Rabbeinu Shalel. They cried, they cried because it was too much. But interestingly, they cried when the Melech Mitzrayim died. Why is it that they cried when the Melech Mitzrayim died? One would think that for a slave, for a servant, for a laborer, when things are in Transition, there's a little bit of a break from the Shibut. There's a little bit of a break from the bondage. Things don't work as well in transition. Between kings in that time, between kings, things should have, if anything, gotten easier. Why was it that the Misa, the death of the Melech Mitzrayim, was what brought about the Shavosam, the Vayizaku of Kla Yisrael, that they cried out specifically then? It's not just a timeline, but Dvarim Gedolim Einam B'mikra, big things are not a coincidence. And the Pasuk tells us, Vayamas Melech Mitzrayim, the king of Egypt died, and then they cried. Why were they crying from the Avodah specifically then? There's an interesting halacha regarding slaves, Avodim. In Jewish law, a Jew owns his children. A non-Jew also owns his children. But interestingly, a slave does not own his children. In that sense, a slave is less fortunate even than a non-Jew. A slave does not own his own children. What is the depth of this halacha? What's the meaning of this halacha that a slave doesn't own his own children? And the meaning is simple and profound at the same time. The difference between a slave and any other laborer is not merely that he works more or he's on call for more hours, or that he has to work harder. There are very protective rules about slaves in Jewish law. The Gemara, the Rambam, go on to protect slaves very much. We can't work them too hard. We need to treat them well. 
The difference between a slave and a regular laborer, the line that's crossed, is that a laborer is a person with a sense of self who is going and working for another person. A slave has no sense of self. He is entirely meshubit. He is entirely enslaved to the person who owns him. He has no sense of self because he has no self. He doesn't actually own himself. He doesn't have any achiza on himself. He has no grasp on himself. He has no rights to himself. He's a slave. It's the life of a slave. It's, it's a slave mindset. It's a slave mentality. He doesn't own himself. He isn't his own. One's child is an extension of himself, a manifestation of himself. If a person doesn't own himself, certainly he doesn't own his children. He has no bailas, he has no ownership on those children, he has no ownership on himself. Someone else owns him, and someone else owns them. Paroi knew very well. Paroi understood very deeply, as the Ramchal tells us. And he used this technique to enslave Klal Yisrael. He was vatichbat ha he made the avoida so hard, and the purpose was to distract them. They should never be able to think for themselves. They should never be able to think about themselves. They shouldn't have the time or the feeling that they have the right to think about themselves, to, to, to introspect, to give deep thought, to be misbeinein about their situation in life, about where they're coming from, about where they're going to, about how painful things are. They don't have a right to cry. They don't have a right to express the pain. They don't belong to themselves. They belong to someone else. They aren't their own. But then there was a break. There was a break in the Shibud. The Melech Mitzrayim died. And the new Melech didn't have things up and running just yet. And there was just enough time that these slaves were able to break from that slave mentality for one moment. For one moment, things eased up enough that they, can, they had the right to think about themselves. They had the right to look inside. And at the moment that they looked inside that they looked at themselves in the mirror, at the moment that they felt the right to be able to call themselves by their names, at the moment that they felt the right to be able to understand themselves, to be able to realize themselves, at that moment they cried out from pain. They didn't have the capacity to cry before. It wasn't that things got so difficult that they cried. Things were very difficult and yet they couldn't cry. They weren't yoideya livchais. They didn't know how to cry. Because they couldn't look at themselves. They couldn't give thought. There was no revach lehisbainen. There was no time. There was no space in their life to be able to give thought to themselves. To understand themselves. To understand where they've come from. Where they're going to and what they're in the middle of at that time. And when there was that break, they became yaydeya livchais. And that's when they cried. Crying is progress. Crying is productive. One who cries is one who has the capacity to face himself. One who cries is one who refuses to live in the bondage of the currents of the life that carry him. Those who don't have the capacity to cry are those who life distracts too much for them to ever be able to look inside. And we all know about ourselves and we all know about all people. The times are tough. Life is distracting. But what life distracts us from most is from ourselves 
from being able to be that Yodeya Livchais, to be able to know how to cry. There's a time that we're able to look at ourselves, to understand those flaws that we've been living with for years or for decades, but somehow never be able to look in the mirror to be able to call it by its name. Somehow never be able to look at ourselves, to investigate, to think deeply, to have a Revach by name, to pull ourselves apart in a productive way, and then to face it and cry to look at it, call it by its name, and cry to be Yodeya Livchais. That Bechia, that Bechia is the first step towards building. It's not the last step in destruction. The Avais were Yodeya Livchais. Yirmiya lived in the destruction, and the Rabbi Shalom said to him, you don't know how to cry. You don't know how to feel the pain. How is it that Yirmiya couldn't feel the pain? He witnessed it all. That's exactly why he couldn't feel the pain. He didn't have that revach lehisbainein, that foresight that the Avais had, where they looked forward. They were builders. They were the builders of our nation. And who knows how to look inside? Who knows how to be misbainein more than the builders of the nation? Who knows how to cry more than one who's building, one who's making progress? Those are the Yodeya Livchais. The tears that will rebuild the Beis HaMikdash. When we plant with tears, we'll one day reap the benefits with great joy. Only a nation that can cry today will one day learn to laugh. Shomi Miktosh me believe boy moyed alki didim nitinuli moyed shivam kimeyos soy mech soyed rachim sion kivo moyed. Turn to Kino Lamed Aleph 31, page 304 in the Art Scroll. One of the more poetic kinois which contrasts. The Bitsesi mi Mitzrayim and Bitsesi mi Yerushalayim contrasts the situation that we were in when we left Mitzrayim. The great Gvura Gavoyo Miforsemes, the great glory that we found ourselves in when we left Mitzrayim, walking out like princes and kings, to the situation that we find ourselves in as we leave Yerushalayim. The mourning, the destruction, the ashes everywhere as we leave Yerushalayim from the Chorban. I think that more than 
the ironic contrast between B'tseisi Mimitzrayim and B'tseisi Mimitzrayim, more than a tease of how far we've fallen, more than showing us this great display of what we once were and what we are today, more than that, I think there's a dimension over here which speaks very much to the Moyed of Tishabov. Let's try to imagine a person who rents a home for 10 or 15 years. He lives there peacefully. The landlord is fear. He pays his rent. There's an ongoing relationship. And then from one day to the next, the landlord throws him out. He doesn't have another place to go to. He wants to sell the house or develop the home or for whatever reason he throws him onto the street. And he stands there with his suitcases looking at the door as the landlord closes it, trying to figure out where he's going to go. There's fear, there's pain, perhaps there's anger. Let's contrast that to a son of 10 or 15 years that lives in a home peacefully with his parents. And then from one moment to the next, he's thrown out onto the street. And he stands there with his suitcases as his parents close the door, as they just threw him out of his home. And he stands there watching and the tears are flowing down his face. And he feels pain and sadness. What's the difference between these two people standing and looking at their place of habitat for 10 or 15 years disappear in front of them? The difference is that the one who was thrown out feels the pain of being left alone. The one who was thrown out who rented from the landlord feels the pain of being left alone, being left on the street, and that pain is nothing to laugh at. But the child who was thrown out of the home of his parents is not feeling the pain of being left alone in the street without knowing where to go next. He's feeling the pain of betrayal. He's feeling the pain of what was once expressed as love now being expressed as hate. The depth of that emotion is immeasurably greater than the first person's emotion can ever be. Because the weight with which he fell is predicated on the height from which, on which he once stood. Only something that weighs that much can shatter so terribly. Only something that felt so good can now feel so miserable. Only a love that was that deep can now be expressed in a hate so disloyal and so with such amkus and such pain. Try to think of the pain that goes when a Jewish marriage is dismantled, Rahman al-Itzlan, and it's messy, and it's horrific, and there's, there's hate, and there's accusations, and there's tears, and frustration, and horrific emotions at play. And no, it can't be settled peacefully necessarily. It can't be, and the reason why is because a Jewish marriage is built on a strength of emotions, of love, of giving, of building, of connection. It's very simple to peel a post-it off of a wall. But if the paper was glued to the wall, you have to scrape at it for hours and hours to get anything off. When something is connected so strongly, being able to rip it apart is heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. We're not just looking at a contrast of B'tseisi Mimitzrayim to B'tseisi Mimushalayim. But we have to be able to understand to derher, to be able to see, to perceive in the ashes what once was. We feel sometimes in our gullus like the pain will never end. And that's only because we are a nation that will one day see a joy that will never end. We feel a pain so deep. 
we're trampled on like no one else. And that's because we will one day ride up high like no one else. Only those who were B'tzaisimi Mitzrayim, only those who walked out of Mitzrayim with such height, have the capacity for the pain of that B'tzaisimi Mitzrayim. And we have to be able to perceive in the Yisoyimim and Almanais, in the widows and the orphans of Yerushalayim, the princes and the queens that walked out of Mitzrayim, and what will once be. There's an emotion, there's a dimension that outweighs, that transcends sadness and joy. There's an emotion that far outweighs sadness and joy. It's an emotion that can give explanation to a day like today, being a Yom Tzara and a Mayid at the same time. More than sadness and more than joy is something called greatness. The Ge'oyin Yaakov, the greatness of a Yid. And we have to be able to perceive in the tears, in the ashes, in the Chorban, in the destruction of, of today, the greatness and the glory of tomorrow. And that's why we say this kinah of B'tzaisim Mitzrayim and B'tzaisim Yerushalayim. Because once we understand that our Chorban of B'tzaisim Yerushalayim is mevusus, it's based on the greatness of our B'tzaisim Mitzrayim, will be zaycha to what it says at the end of the kinah. The sasayin v'simcha v'nas yagayin v'anacha. The gladness, the joy, and the fleeing of any sort of anguish b'shuvi Yerushalayim when we return to Yerushalayim. Eish tu kad bekir bivad loisi alibi b'tzaisi mitzrayim. Kine mar yilum anaski b'tzaisi mitzrayim. Thank you.